According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again, if you would, in Philippians chapter 4. We're looking at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. That's six whatever is. Six neuter plural adjectives. Whatever is. And then two nouns. If there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So we're learning the thought process that God expects us to maintain with respect to our rational thinking, our logizomai rational thinking related to his word and the circumstances around us. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for his faithfulness yet again to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again and that we have a new day set before us. We have truth available, that your word, uh, Father, is, is being provided this morning. So we thank you for that grace provision. We ask that we can set aside our distractions and humble us, Father, humble us to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so really, we're looking at the sixth and seventh imperatives of this paragraph centering on the thinking and actions of rapture-ready saints. Uh, we are to be rapture-ready, and we are to be standing firm, and we are joining crown kindred, if you recall. Uh, all of these expressions have come in the first seven verses, and now we're uh, getting to the conclusion here in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 tells us what to think about, and verse 9 tells us what to do. Because all these things we're thinking about, we're going to be putting into practice in verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the, the uh, God of peace will be with you. And so we have the dwelling in verse 8, we have the practice in verse 9, and that's really what it comes down to, the perception and application of Bible doctrine. We're studying truth and we want to live it out, and that's the, the simplicity of the, uh, of the Christian way of life. And so under this, we've been, uh, we also had a note here related to Legizomite and uh, thinking reckoning that takes place there. But we have the six adjectives, and these are what are stipulating appropriate mental dwelling. Remember, let your mind dwell. The idea of dwelling, the idea of living, this is a present active imperative. This is continuous action in present time. It's not just a, a flyby. It's not just a momentary stay. I think uh, you know the idea of dwelling is a long-term permanent residency. Where do you dwell? Where do you live? And uh, if it's just an overnight stay in a hotel room, that doesn't count. You don't live there, all right? Or a weekend in California, that doesn't count. You don't live there. You're just visiting there. And this is the issue with respect to the Bible, with respect to the Word of God. We're commanded to abide in the Word. And I think some people think they're abiding in the Word when they're just really casual visitors and they're not long-term residents. And so this is, I think, very important in uh, in many applications. So... Uh, we've now covered all six of these, although uh, Wednesday night was a little rough. I apologize. We'll see uh, <laughs> if that edified anybody or not with all the allergies and things going on. Uh, but whatever is true, we discussed the aspect of truth. Not only we we recognize that it's true, intrinsically that it's true, but we also reckon it as true. That's significant, that we have our own reckoning 
that we, we impute it, we reckon it, that we credit it as true. Not only because it is, but because from our perspective, we add our own testimony. We're putting our own stamp upon it uh, as, as being true. I'll say a few more things about that as well. <coughs> Whatever is honorable, the term semnos, the term that really is for the qualification of deacons and deaconesses, the qualification for elders in a local church, for older men to younger men, whatever is semnos, honorable. And, uh, and it's just left in our, in our determination, whether it's honorable or not, whether it's true or not. We have to give the reckoning. And uh, then we are accountable to the Lord as far as why we consider this certain thing honorable when God himself says, no, that's not honorable. Why did you reckon that as honorable? Why did you reckon that as true? Why did you reckon that as lovely? God says, I don't find that lovely. Why do you find that lovely? All of these are for us to think about, but also to reckon in the full recognition of Lagidzimai as the application. Whatever is righteous. And I prefer the rendering righteous rather than right. Uh, the, the adjective dikaios speaks of righteous, even as dikaiosune speaks of righteousness. And in the bulk of the translations through the New Testament, it's rendered as righteous rather than right. Um, <laughs> and I just think it's a better rendering uh, for us as English speakers, because when we think of right, we typically think of things as being either right or wrong, you know, correct or incorrect. And uh, we have such a diminished idea of right that it's just simply a matter of being correct. Uh, it's bigger than that. It's, it's according to God's righteous standards and God's holy standard of justice. And so something is either, it's not a right or wrong, it's a righteous versus unrighteous contrast. And so we want to be dwelling on the righteous. We don't want to be dwelling on the unrighteous. And that's what it comes down to. And so whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is righteous, whatever is pure, and I'm fine with pure, uh, innocent might be another way to render this, uh, but this is the contrast of the two kinds of wisdom in James 3. Let me grab that one. I really wanted to do more with this on Wednesday, but I was just losing all kinds of voice Wednesday night. James chapter 3. And this idea of purity is really the nice test, a very easy test related to the contrast between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. And uh, and if you think there's any kind of question as to which wisdom you're following, uh, usually the purity test will tell it pretty quickly uh, as far as this contrast is concerned. James 3.13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. If you're operating under the world's wisdom, this is going to be the effect. This is going to be the consequence. And yet, you can lie to yourself and say that you're, you're doing fine, that you're, you're serving the Lord. You're not. You're serving yourself. And you're operating in Satan's wisdom, not God's wisdom. So do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, the kind you're using, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. See, and we want no part of that. Even though it masquerades as a, as a substitute, it masquerades itself as an equivalent for God and His wisdom, it is, it is anything but. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. And so you get entire religious systems, entire structures built upon this kind of wisdom. Entire hierarchies of churches built upon this kind of wisdom where it's all self-promotion, self-advancement, jealousy and and ambition. 
And we want no part of that. But the wisdom from above is first pure. The very first item on the list, the wisdom from above is first pure. And that's our term hagnos. That's our term for uh, to dwell on these things. Uh, whatever is pure, dwell on these things. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And so this purity is uh, involved in the contrast between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. So dwell on these things. Dwell on the wisdom of God's word, and you'll be dwelling on whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is lovely. Now the fun thing about prosphiles, the adjective here for lovely in Philippians 4, 8, this is the only place that prosphiles occurs. And uh, in fact, some of these are rather unusual. Semnos doesn't appear that often, only four times. Um, Hagnos is not very common, only eight times. Prosphiles, this is what we call a a hapax legomena. It's only used once anywhere here in the New Testament, and this is it. So it gives you a very limited word study. It's this verse, okay? Beyond that, we can go to maybe the Septuagint or some secular writers, things of that nature. And I also, I didn't mention this Wednesday, but it's been growing on me here lately that Paul is using some more obscure terms. He is using uh, some, some vocabulary he doesn't typically employ as if deliberately he's making this point. He wants his, his, his readers to think through and, and to recognize what these things are because it's not an exhaustive list. They're going to be able to expand upon this list. And uh, we'll show you that here in a moment. But whatever is lovely... And so we can appreciate lovely things, uh, but we can recognize, first of all, though, that it's not a compound of agape love. It's not a compound of agape at all. It's a compound of philos love. And so we recognize that this kind of loveliness is different than what we would use when we're commanded to love one another or to love our enemies or to, to love the Lord your God. Those are all agape, uh, agapao love applications, okay? And then how many times do we uh, do we stress that when we talk about love, like husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church? We have a lot of love imperatives that are all in the agape love uh, category. And then under that kind of love, the fruit of the Spirit is agape, not philos. Okay? Under that kind of love, we love regardless of how unlovely the object is. In fact, it's the only kind of love you can love the unlovely with. You can't have phileo love for the unlovely. You can't have phileo love. In fact, that rapport love, if it's not returned, you can't fully express it because it's designed to be a friendship love, a rapport love, a mutual, reciprocal, returned kind of fellowship love. That's what phileo is all about. Agape does not take into account the merit of the object. And so these are huge differences through the New Testament and they become significant. And, uh, and today especially, they become significant for the opposite reason of why we usually say it's significant. Okay? Because we usually highlight the fact that God so loved the world, even though the world was unlovely. And Christ so loved the church, right? Not because we were so lovely. And husbands love your wives uh, even when they're not so lovely. That's the point. If you limit your agape love to only those objects that deserve it, only those objects that you find lovely, then you just shot yourself in the foot. You're not applying agape love. Agape love does not take into account the lovability of the object, see. But this is a term that does. Whatever is lovable, whatever is lovely. And so we recognize, guess what? We get 
We get the best of both worlds because we function in agape love one towards another. And then as all of us are using that agape love towards one another, we start to find realms of fellowship and realms of uh, rapport. We start to find realms of, of shared phileo love together. And those, those are precious. Those are marvelous. And so we can share those loves together and we can find things lovely in one another. And we can credit things that are lovely in one another. And that's the best part. This is what a lot, this is, this is such a thrill to be able to describe how we live out phileo love, see. And like I say, it's, it's been growing on me more and more, I think, in recent weeks, the recognition that, that uh, there's a valid place for phileo love within the body of Christ. And because we not only think about these things, we credit these things. We impute these things. We make the crediting statement, see. And so how might we do this? Well, it is an imperative. You're commanded to do the crediting, so do the crediting. You've got a, a, a brother in Christ, credit something lovely about that person to that person, and then celebrate it. See, it doesn't say list all their faults. <laughs> Remember, love doesn't keep account of a, a list of wrongs. But with respect to what is it that you observe lovely in that person, in that church, in that ministry, in that passage of Scripture, all right? And then identify with that loveliness and you'll be fulfilling Philippians 4.8. Whatever is lovely. And then finally, whatever is of good repute. I don't like the translation of good repute. Um, I just think it's too many words for a simple adjective. All of these are simple adjectives and so let's just keep our translation simple each step of the way. I'm going to render this as commendable. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is righteous, I guess that's an adjustment I'm making. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Commendable. I like that better than of good repute. Commendable. So find something to commend in the person. Just like you found something lovely, find something to commend and then commend it. And then dwell on that. But you do the imputing. You do the assigning. Remember, it's an active transitive verb. You do the assigning and you think on it. That's where our thoughts are supposed to be. Whatever is commendable. I love euphemos. And uh, if I wasn't feeling so terrible Wednesday night, we would have had a lot more fun with euphemos. Uh, But the idea of euphemisms, have you thought about that since Wednesday? We've got a lot of euphemisms that we employ in a lot of different things in a lot of different capacities in different ways. But you is the EU prefix for something well, and then famos, so you famos. And uh, we, it comes into the English with the, with the word, with the word uh, you know, euphemism, or euphemistic, or euphemistically. We find a euphemism because we find a nice way to say something rather than the, the, the crude way to say something, or uh, a less nice way to say something. So we use a euphemism instead. And it's just a means of communication. And, uh, and we use them all the time. They're common to the human experience. Imagine uh, Adam and Eve had euphemisms way back in the beginning. So, you know, humanity has been using euphemisms ever since. Uh, but here we have the commendable. Find a nice way to say it. And uh, commend your brother in Christ. Commend your sister in Christ. Whatever is commendable. So you can, uh, you can say something a mean way. Or you can say something a nice way. Uh, just, you know, how do you want to phrase it? How do you want to think about it? That becomes significant as well. So <laughs> my last 
Scrabble tournament I played in. I got to play against an opponent I've never played before because uh, I had been moved up recently into an upper division, a division I didn't normally play in. Now I'm pretty regular in that new division. And so we were getting ready to start the game, and, and he looks across the table at me and says, I don't think we've ever played before, have we? I've known him for years, but we haven't played before in a tournament setting. And, uh, and uh, I said, well, no, we haven't. Thank you for saying that. And because he had said it the nice way instead of a, uh, you know, a, maybe a more ugly way or a, I see you finally made it to Division Two, <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, you normally play with the newbies down there in, the, in Division Three. He could have had a real mean way to say it, but he was very nice. He said it in a good way, in a euphemous kind of way and uh, welcomed me to, uh, to Division Two. And then he beat me. He beat me thoroughly in, uh, in that game. But that's all right. I, uh, I'm happy to be playing in this division. So we'll see how that goes. <coughs> but there's euphemisms for everything. And sometimes we teach our children to use euphemisms. We teach them different euphemisms for different bodily functions, or we teach them different euphemisms for, for um, any, any number of things, okay, related to that. <coughs> All right. I even learned, never mind. I'll let that go. <laughs> no, I learned you women have euphemisms that you've been keeping from us. <laughs> I've been married maybe 20 years and I finally learned something that you women were keeping a secret this whole time. That's all right. I won't spill the, I won't spill, I won't say it on tape here this morning, but I do know what it is now. <laughs> so these are the six adjectives, okay? Think on these things. Dwell on these things. Impute these things. Remember, the idea of imputation is also included in this rational, logical thinking of logizomai. Because this is what happened when we got saved. Your sins were logizomai imputed to Jesus Christ. God the Father was the subject of that verb. And he took your sins, and under the verb logizomai, he reckoned them as being Jesus' sins instead of your sins. Isn't that beautiful? And then Jesus took those sins on the cross, and he died. Because the wages of sin is death. And he accepted the penalty in our behalf because God had reckoned them. He had considered them. He had logically imputed them to Jesus instead of to you. And then when you believed in Jesus, God did another reckoning. The law gives him my application again. He took the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he reckoned it to your account. And so he considered he, he dwelt on these things. He thought through these things. He logically, rationally thought it through. And he considered that your righteousness now is no longer your righteousness, that you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so he imputed that. He rationally credited that, reckoned that to your account. And so we do the very same things. In fact, with whatever is uh, true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, commendable, all these things, we are not only thinking about them for what they are, but we're also imputing them to one another. We're imputing them to testing circumstances. We're imputing them to other, other things that we're experiencing in the Christian walk. See, and that helps us from getting bitter and harboring uh, attitudes against them or grumbling about the circumstances. Different applications there. All right, so these are the six. Now, are these the only six? 
I believe they're not the only six. I believe it's not an exhaustive list. Because exegetically now, as we're working our way through this text, we're, we're working our way through, and it's, it's pretty straightforward, <coughs> as we're working our way through, and it's, it's even redundant, and it's even predictable, and it's, it's kind of nice to work our way through this text. I don't have my software running, or I'd show it to you. But uh, it's, it's hasa, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a relative pronoun in the neuter plural, and all of these adjectives here in the, in, the, in the neuter plural. So whatever things are true, whatever things are honorable, whatever things are righteous, whatever things are pure, and it's just hasa, 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 six times through with a, a corresponding adjective. But then there's a switch. Then there's a great big if, and there is, if there is any excellence, any, even a tiny little amount, if there's any excellence, and we switch. And so now instead of neuter plural adjectives, now we're talking uh, a couple of nouns. If there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise. And so we have two additional items. I think these nouns are helping us to tie together what these adjectives are all about and helping us to expand on those adjectives if we so choose. And so um, I, I give this to you now under point two. Remember in point one we had six adjectives stipulate appropriate mental dwelling. These neuter plurals are identifying a variety of whatsoever things that are presently characterized by the following adjectives. Okay, And they are present tense. Whatever is honorable, okay? Maybe it didn't used to be honorable. Man, maybe it used to have a past that you just hang your head and shake, you know, shake your head at it and wonder, whatever the past was, what is it now? Whatever is honorable. Whatever is lovely. And I love the present tense and all these adjective descriptions. But now we have two nouns. And two nouns are, are now, they form a summary of those first six these two nouns summarize the above adjectives and establish two basic principles for adding to the open-ended list. Adding to the open-ended list. And so basically you can say, all right, now all six of these items, what are they? All six of these items, essentially, they're all excellent and they're all uh, worthy of praise. They're all excellent and they're all praiseworthy. And so if we're going to add to this list, we can do so with these guidelines in place we can take these nouns, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, then we can add to this list of six adjectives. It's, it's not an exhaustive list. It's not an exhaustive list. So if you have another adjective, if there's something you want to add to this list, as long as it's excellent and worthy of praise, then add it to the list. See, no problem with that. <coughs> as I mentioned, uh, the illustration I used on Wednesday, there's more, but uh, think about loyal. I like loyalty. God loves loyalty. He talks about the chesed, loving kindness of loyalty there. And, and God loves loyalty. Well, loyalty isn't one of the six adjectives that we, or, or loyal is not one of the six adjectives that we, that we saw. Well, does that mean I can't dwell on it then because it's not one of those six? See? Well, I believe we can dwell on it because lo- uh, loyal, uh, God praises loyalty. He, uh, he greets people in heaven with well done, good and faithful servant. He praises loyalty. He talks about uh, loyalty in, in the chesed, loving kindness. He loves loyalty rather than sacrifice. Loyal, something that's loyal is a, is a praiseworthy item. It's excellent. It's worthy of praise. 
And so under those criteria then, we can add loyal to our list of adjectives. It can become our seventh adjective. We can have eight, nine, ten. There's no limit to the adjectives because it's whatsoever is excellent and worthy of praise. So we have two basic principles for adding to the open-ended list. Starting with excellence. Starting with excellence. And this is arete. This is the feminine noun of arete. A-R-E-T-E. You got the short E followed by the long E. (coughs) Alpha, Rho, Epsilon, Tau, Eta, arete. Five uses in the New Testament. And this is where, if you've heard of Camp Arete, I've been praying for Camp Arete. Jeff Phipps came and gave a missionary report on Camp Arete uh, back in, in July. Um, this is a camp that uh, doctrinal churches are supporting and uh, sending their kids to this camp. It was in Colorado for several years. It was in Tennessee this last year and probably will repeat there coming up. But Camp Arete is fostering biblical excellence into the life of these young people and uh, helping them to foster this sense of, of uh, community amongst themselves and I love the fact that we're getting doctrinal kids from churches all over the country that are coming to this camp and finding out that, oh, there's, there's other churches like ours, and <laughs> we're not the only weirdos in the world that, that attend a, a church like this, and, and, and they get exposed to a, a, a broader uh, group of their own peers, and I can appreciate that. All right, how about 1 Peter 2.9 and 2 Peter 1, where uh, this term gets used? And this also is interesting. It's not a typically Pauline word. It's really more of a of a Peter word, but Paul uses it here in this text. 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that... You ever wonder why God saved you? (laughs) And this is it. You say, well, I'm glad you saved me. I I don't want to go to hell when I die. Yes, that's a side effect. That's uh, that's not the purpose. The purpose clause for why he saved you was not to keep you from going to hell when you die. The purpose clause is right here. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, the eretai, that's a plural of erite, the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called for this purpose and we get to proclaim God's excellencies. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so God's got every excellence you can imagine and uh, more. (laughs) He's got excellence that you can't imagine. It's just beyond our comprehension. But everything that we have capacity to identify as being excellent, we better start praising it. We better start telling uh, this lost and dying world how excellent our God is. 2 Peter 1, it's used in verse 3 and it's used twice in verse 5. (coughs) grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of god and of jesus our lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness let me read that again his divine power has granted to us yep it says everything everything okay i could double check the greek just to be sure yeah it says everything okay not just most things, not just a lot of stuff, okay? And you might, you got to imagine, underline this verse, put it on your refrigerator, stare at this verse seven days a week. 
Because I believe there's a tendency in our culture to view the insufficiency of Scripture as something that needs help. And to view that we have problems in life that Scripture can't handle. Or we've got issues that, that the Scriptures don't provide for, so we need to supplement. In other words, we need human counseling. We need psychotherapy. We need drugs. Because Scripture only covers so far. Scripture only covers you know up to a point. And then beyond that, we need to help out the Word of God. Well, 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So the situations and the problems of life, the problems of daily life, the problems of living, the Bible covers everything. Absolutely everything. How does it do it? Through the true knowledge, the epinosis, the full knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Here's our salvation in Christ, the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ. And by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. How many promises are there in Scripture? And if you don't know any of the promises, how can you claim them? And if you haven't hidden the Word in your heart, how can you live them out? Because it's through, notice, by these, that is by His own glory and excellence, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. So start claiming them, start living them, dwell on these things. So that by them you may come, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This is not talking about getting saved. This is talking about people who already are saved who need to be living that way, who need to be transformed by the renewing of their mind, who need to be uh, transformed so they're not conformed to this age. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. And that right there tells you why most Christians don't do it. Because <laughs> it's hard. Applying diligence. You mean i got to work at this? That's right. Getting saved is easy. Christ did the work. But living out the Christian way of life? That's hard. That requires diligence. You've got to work at this. Of course, His grace sustains you and brings you through it, but there you go. It's still diligence. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Supply arete. And in your arete, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In brotherly kindness, love, agape love. All right? And if these qualities are yours and are increasing, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's not enough just simply to get them. It's not enough to say, been there, done that, I got that once. Okay? You've got to get it, keep it, and keep growing in it. The qualities have to be increasing. Because if you ever stop increasing, what, what happens? If you ever stop growing, what happens? When you stop being renewed in the spirit of your mind, Romans 12, 1, you're conformed to this age. And so if they are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you think about it, how much do you know the Lord? How much did you know the Lord? How well did you know the Lord the day you got saved? And how well do you know the Lord now? 
And how well do you know the Lord when you're abiding in Christ, living in the Word of God, when you're watching Him bear fruit in and through you of His good pleasure? How well do you know the Lord when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and His rod and His staff comfort you? Okay? We get to know the Lord through these things. And so we've got to have these qualities and they've got to be increasing, rendering you neither useless nor unfruitful. I've started using that now when people ask, how are you? I love it. Neither useless nor unfruitful. <laughs> and so far, I've yet to encounter anyone that was able to quote to me, oh, that comes from Second Peter, doesn't it? You know, and I'm waiting. It hadn't happened yet. Once I finally had somebody quote James 1 to me when I said, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, how are you? And they said, that's from James chapter 1. Oh, I wanted to hug the person. I don't hug, but I wanted to hug them. So if there was any excellence, find the excellence. And the excellence is in Christ. The excellence is in God. The excellence is in God's Word. If there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, praiseworthy, epinos, praise or pray, worthy of praise, epinos. E-P-A-I-N-O-S, Epinos. 1868, this is Strong's Concordance number, 11 New Testament uses. I probably put all 11 of them on the screen because it's a, it's a fun word. Praiseworthy, worthy of praise. The, um, the tendency, I think, uh, is we don't praise enough. We need to praise more. I think the tendency, uh, because we want to avoid sinful boasting, is that we don't do any boasting. And that's not an answer because... Not doing any boasting means we're not boasting in the Lord. And Scripture commands us to boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's called praise. And so boasting in the Lord is not, not sinful. And, uh, and, and boasting in the Lord, we need to do more of it. Because if he's worthy of praise and we're not praising, that's a problem. And, and everything God does is praiseworthy. Why don't we praise it? And so uh, the, the term itself can refer to praise or anything that is worthy of praise. And this is a Pauline term. We have this in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, um, as well as uh, 1 Peter. So let's go back to Romans, walk our way through this. Anything worthy of praise? Praiseworthy. <clears throat> so if you find that you're dwelling on your problems, whatever, you know, allergies, um, whatever, you got other problems, you got a uh, dead battery, Okay, so there's a test. And so what are you going to do? You're going to dwell on a dead battery and grumble about it and complain about it? You know, because that dead battery is not excellent and it's not worthy of praise. Oh, I guess I shouldn't spend much time dwelling on it. <laughs> okay, but God's faithful provision is excellent and it is worthy of praise. So that's what I want to dwell on. Not the test, not the circumstance, not the whatever, the cancer diagnosis or the, 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 the test or whatever it is you're facing. The issue itself is not excellent, not worthy of praise. But the faithfulness God shows through that testing, that's excellent and that's worthy of praise. Romans 2.29. <coughs> All right. Um... Talking about circumcision versus uncircumcision here, Jews and Gentiles. Verse 28 says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward of the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. 
And his praise is not from man, his epinos is not from man, but from God. And so right here at the very first use, we have a big clue is that this world has one standard by which they will praise certain things and God has his standard by which he praises certain things. And we want to make sure if we're going to credit something, if we're going to lagizomai reckon something as being praiseworthy, that it's based on God's standard, not the world's standard. We want to make sure that we're labeling it as praiseworthy in, in agreement with how God would label it, right? Not how the world would label it. Big difference. If you're walking that Hollywood Walk of Fame, there's stars all over the place. And a lot of those guys I don't view being very praiseworthy. But uh, Hollywood does, and they've honored them in their achievements in uh, film and theater and radio and five different categories. You can get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And then some of them you think, how did they get a star? <laughs> you know, I don't even know who this person is. All right. But when God gives the praise, his praise is not from men, but from God. That makes all the difference. Romans 13, 3. <clears throat> this is why we're to be subject to governing authorities, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. If you're not speeding and you see the cop parked there on the side of the road, you don't get scared. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Drive the speed limit. It doesn't bother you if he's parked there on the side of the road. Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Epinos. You will have epinos from the same. And so if you're law-abiding... If you're a law-abiding citizen under the authority of government, government will praise you for conforming, for abiding by the laws of, uh, of, the, of the civilization. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. <clears throat> Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. We're not, each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're not there yet. And, and I'm not your judge. You're not my judge. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Stop acting like you are the judge. Okay? You know, like we used to say, who died and put you in charge? You know, who, who made you the judge of the universe? It's not you. All right. The, the judge is on his way. And he could be here today. And he will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's epinos, each man's praise will come to him from God. Isn't that beautiful? The judgment seat of Christ is a praise event. It's not a shame event. And there will be things that will be judged. There will be things that will be burned up. There is wood, hay, and stubble production that will be utterly consumed and burned and swept away. That's not mentioned here. What's mentioned is the epinos. Whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, that's what God's going to mention. After the fire is done, your praise will come from God. That's a beautiful uh, testimony. I appreciate that. Each man's praise will come from God. Ephesians 1, 6. Actually, three verses in Ephesians 1. 6, 12, and 14. (coughs) 
This is one great big long sentence from verse 3 down to verse 14. This was Michael Snyder's favorite passage. This was He worked his way through this text with all kinds of study and underlines and colors and color codes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have it all. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise. Here's our first use. To the epinos. To the praise of the glory of His grace. His grace is glorious. His grace is praiseworthy. How can we not praise Him for what He's done? It is utterly worthy of praise. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. Everything we have is in Christ. He is the Beloved One. We're His bride. We're in Him. And all of these blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is in Christ. And so there we are. In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. It's all about Jesus and not about us. It's the purpose that He purposed in Christ with a view to, not the church age, with a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of the times. The church age that you and I live in right now, this is just a step along the way. It's an important step. It is a step along the way. This is the age in which He's calling forth the bride. This is the age in which He is suiting and equipping the bride of Christ to be the queen in the coming millennial kingdom and beyond. But the King of kings and Lord of lords and His bride have ministry to pursue in the millennium and in the fullness of times. That's the new heavens and the new earth after the thousand years, with a view to a dispensation or administration suitable to the fullness of the times. This is what God's had in view. And even when he was working through Israel, he had this in view. When he was working through the church, he had this in view. Back when he was working through Gentiles, he had this in view. Even before man, there was a dispensation of angels. But God had this in view. His focus was on this dispensation of the fullness of times the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth, a body of people that are both heavenly and earthly. This is a a glorious, deep, deep doctrine here. Also, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, so that, to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. So here's what's worthy of praise and praiseworthy. Calling forth a bride. We have a stewardship that's unique. That's very first. Now they got saved in the Old Testament. Don't get me wrong. Jewish believers, Gentile believers received eternal life. Their sins were forgiven. They, they got saved in the Old Testament. But they were not baptized in the union in Christ. We are the first. We are the first post-Calvary stewardship after the cross with a seated Savior All right, we who are the first 
to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Another church age uh, provision that was not available in the Old Testament. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. It's a deposit, it's a down payment. It's the guarantee that the rest is coming. It's the earnest money, if you will. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Notice, to the praise of His own glory. This is also that God gets praised and all the more. To God be the glory, great things He has done, right? It's not to Bob be the glory, great things Bob has done. To God be the glory, great things God has done. And it's all for His praise. Every knee will bend, every tongue will confess to the glory, to the praise of God the Father. So the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. We're called to proclaim those. We should be proclaiming those. The last two uses are both from Peter. 1 Peter 1.7 We were just here. We were just talking about... Um, no, we were in Second Peter. Never mind. Oh, we were in chapter 2. I see it there. All right. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 Here we are as believers. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an, inherit- an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You are a son. You have a full inheritance, a son or a daughter. You are a child of God. You have a full inheritance. You can't lose it. God will never get mad at you and write you out of his will because you're in Christ and Christ is the heir of all things. We're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's eternal security of the believer right there. You can't lose your salvation. God protects you. Ready for the phase three salvation when you're face to face in glory. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and it is, you have been distressed by various trials. Do you know why God tests you? He tests you. Well, I'll tell you why. Verse seven. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So because you're tested now and your faith is proven, praise and glory and honor for us, for Jesus, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. All praise to Jesus as your faith is tested by these testings we go through as it's proven through testing. All glory, praise, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Chapter 2 and verse 14 is similar to the Romans 13 passage. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every human institution, institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right for the praise of those who do right. So we have six adjectives. We have two nouns. Those nouns allow us to expand upon the adjectives. They help us to shape our thinking 
what it is we think about, what it is that we impute, all right? What it is we impute and what it is we don't impute. A lot of darkness and we shouldn't be imputing darkness. We don't want to impute um, or to reckon harmful things to a, a brother. Why would we do that? To impute uh, false motives to a brother, why would we do that? To, uh, to say, well, they must not be saved. Why are, you, why are you reckoning that? That's not excellent or worthy of praise. That's not true, honorable, right, lovely. Why are you imputing such a thing to your brother? Why even think that thought? It doesn't qualify under Philippians 2.8 or Philippians 4.8. Alright. Now, the summa- point three, the summation of adjectives and nouns is a pretty high bar for our mental occupation. The summation of adjectives and nouns is a pretty high bar for our mental occupation. Even one of these six items or eight items would be a high bar. But can you imagine something that qualifies under all eight? Something that qualifies across the board? Well, Jesus does. Okay. In fact, we can name a variety of things that qualify in every respect. The summation of adjectives and nouns is a pretty high bar for a mental occupation. And I think it helps to shape the things we spend our time dwelling on. Why am I focused so much on politics? Why am I focused so much on the news? Why do I read the newspaper before I read my Bible in the morning? Why do I read, uh, why do I spend so much time on, on sports? Well, the Cowboys lost last night, so I guess that's the end of the, for Cowboy fans, that's the end of it there. The Seahawks lost the week before that, so for Seahawks fans, they're over and done with. All right. Honestly, I haven't seen an NFL game in five years now. It's been a long time since I paid attention to, I think they're a bunch of traitors and babies and complaining about slavery when they're multimillionaires or whatever else. This makes me want to puke. But be that as it may, football is not worth me dwelling on for hours and hours at a time. See, now I've got liberty in Christ. I can enjoy a ball game. Uh, I've got liberty in Christ, but to saturate my thinking with that? Wait a minute. To be so involved in that? To, to be so given over to where I'm constantly dwelling on it? I know every stat. I know every team. I know every disabled list. <laughs> I know all the intricacies and the ins and outs, and I just don't want to spend so much time on that. Okay? Well, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ meets all the above criteria. The Lord Jesus Christ meets all of the above criteria. When you go back and you look at those verses I gave you under Alethes, most of those verses centered on Jesus himself personally. Jesus himself personally is true. He himself personally is the faithful and true Lamb of God. Jesus is honorable. Jesus is righteous. Again, we gave you a list of verses, most of those centered on the person of Jesus. Uh, in Acts 3, 4, when and they were preaching to the Jews, you put to death the righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be delivered to you. Remember when they were demanding Barabbas be released? He says, you asked for a murderer to be delivered to you and you handed over the righteous one. And the righteous one died on a cross, the just for the unjust. He meets all the above criteria. Jesus is pure, innocent. Jesus is uh, lovely, absolutely lovely. How do you name the name of Jesus and not be in love with 
the Savior that, that gives you all things. And commendable. And excellent. And worthy of praise. So Jesus Christ meets all the above criteria. I would put forth that the number one item on your daydreaming list any, any given day of the week is Jesus. Spending your time on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews tells us to do. Beyond that, the Word of God. So we have the living Word and the written Word. The Word of God also meets all the above criteria. I can find verses to, to document. And then if I fail to give them, I'd recommend you can search them and find them. Is the Word of God true? I can find several verses to say so. Is the Word of God righteous? I can find several verses to say so. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. The Bible is all of these. If there's any excellence, that's the Word of God. If there's anything worthy of praise, that's the Word of God. You want to know how praiseworthy the Word of God is? Psalms tells us, He has magnified His Word in accordance with His name. He has magnified it up there right alongside the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is the Word of God. That's why I don't believe we can overemphasize doctrine. That's why I believe it's not possible to commit Bible-olatry as we get accused of from time to time. That, well, you just, you just stress the Bible too much. Excuse me? That's not possible. God has magnified it in accordance with His own name. It is worthy of worship even as God's name is worthy of worship because God has so magnified it. And so... I can dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. Think on these things through the Word of God. It's much more edifying than sports or Scrabble or, or uh, you know, the weather, politics, whatever else is going on. Let your mind dwell on these things. Church members. You ever think about this? Church members. And I put those in capital. Remember what does that mean? Church universal. Born again believers in the church age. That's the universal church. Not necessarily lowercase church or Austin Bible church or members of a particular lampstand. But members of the body of Christ. Remember, we're all members one of another. Members of the body of Christ. Dwelling in the word, abiding in Christ, meet all of the above criteria. Now, I put a couple of caveats in that sentence. <laughs> you probably noticed. Okay. <clears throat> what about the carnal brother? What about the non-disciple? What about um, somebody that got saved but then just really never grew, never really um, bore any kind of fruit? In fact, very quickly after they got saved, they, they kind of went back to the mire as the dog returns to its vomit, as the sow returns to the mire. What about those members of the church? Now, <clears throat> I say it's harder, okay? You can still praise the fact that they're born again. It's still true that we'll spend eternity with them. Um, but the present walk is not honorable. See, it's whatever is, not whatever used to be, or not whatever will be, when he's purified by the, great, by the judgment seat of Christ. It's whatever is. 
And it's sad to say that uh, the carnal believer does not meet these criteria, or only if he does, it's only on a very limited basis based upon the positional truth realities of his being saved. And beyond that, there's, there's not much else to praise. Okay? And yet still, I think this becomes significant because what is it we're going to impute to them? What is it we're going to pray for? What is it we're going to think about? Okay? If I'm, uh, if I'm forced to comment on a... I don't like to, but you know, if there's a, a real popular megachurch kind of pastor that gets a lot of media, gets a lot of attention, and uh, a lot of folks are... You know, they go, oh, look, I got this latest book by so-and-so. And they're showing it to me like I'm impressed. Or like I should be impressed. <laughs> they say, look, look, I got this. And they're showing me this book. Not anybody here. It's just people outside of here that know I'm a pastor. They show me this book by this famous guy. And, they, and they're like, uh, like I'm supposed to be excited. And I'm thinking, don't read that. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, uh... I uh, now I don't want to be condemning, and I'm not judging the man. He stands before the same Lord I do, and this is why I want to. I don't want to dwell on the on the uncommendable. I want to dwell on the commendable. And so, on a very limited basis, I mean, I'm thankful that they're at least reading something ostensibly spiritual. I'm thankful that they at least have a, you know, it's there's worse things they could be reading. I'm sure. But how do I commend what is not honorable, what is not true, what is not lovely, what is not... Because it's a form of godliness while they deny its power. And sadly, I think there's, there's folks that, that are holding to a form of godliness while they deny its power, and they think that it's, uh, it's going to count them something at the, great, at, the, at the judgment seat of Christ. So church members dwelling in the Word, abiding in Christ, that's where we have the maximum fellowship. That's where we have the maximum uh, capacity to be able to dwell on these things, to impute these things, to reckon these things, to fellowship in these things. We're going to have that phileo rapport love with those kind of believers, not the carnal believers. All right, so dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. All right, so we have the learning and then we have the application. Wednesday night we'll come back and we'll (coughs) talk about this application. Practice these things, not simply as an academic application, but specifically in manifold imitation of the Apostle Paul. I'll explain what I mean by that as well. Manifold imitation. The things you have heard and seen. (coughs) The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Well, how many times does it have to come across before I finally get it? Learned is only the first step. Yes, there's classroom instruction. Yes, we're studying to show ourselves approved. There's more. I have to receive it. I have to hear it. I have to see it. And then I have to put them into practice. Practice these things. Like the, the noun, the verb practice. Practice these things. So we'll come back Wednesday, Lord willing, and rapture pending, and deal with that. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for preserving my voice. I pray for one more hour. If you're gracious enough to uh, get us through the book of Hebrews as well, Father, uh, you are the, the God of creation, including these, these cedar trees. So it's in your hands, Father, whatever else you choose to do on this day. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.